the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the program. Again, you can follow us, danproftshow.com where we also uh, house our podcasts of previous shows, as well as, uh, you know, for podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, the normal places. Also on Twitter, at Dan Proft or at Dan Proft Show, and uh, Dan Proft Show, also the Facebook handle. I wanted to begin on today's program by talking about a uh, future pardon that will not make headlines and an event that did not make headlines yesterday. Trump in Colorado. Oh, yeah, the Colorado Springs rally made headlines. But I'm talking about where Trump was earlier in the day. uh, And that was in Las Vegas before jetting off to Colorado. He was in Las Vegas for the graduation ceremony for an organization called Hope for Prisoners. It's an organization run by a gentleman who's become a friend of mine named John Ponder, who we've had on my uh, morning show in Chicago. We haven't had him on this show yet, but we will. But I had the opportunity recently to sit down with John Ponder and talk a little bit about his life. That was a career criminal from about the age of 12 to about the age of 38 before he found Christ, turned his life around, and now has spent the last decade turning the lives of other ex-offenders around through his Hope for Prisoners Prisoners organization, which he founded, and which is achieving incredible success at preventing recidivism, getting people who are getting out— to be good citizens when they do, like John Ponder has become. And uh, President Trump made a mention of it yesterday, uh, saying, I'm quoting from the transcript of the event, so they're all saying he's done so well, talking about John, he saved so many lives, he's created happiness in so many families. Sir, would you consider a full pardon for John Ponder? Uh, And Trump goes, and I love doing it, I love doing it, we are, we're giving him absolute consideration And I have a feeling he's going to get that pardon. I have a feeling. I can't tell you, but I have a feeling. So that's a pretty good leading indicator of where this thing is going. And I think once you hear from John Ponder and you get an appreciation for the work that he's done over the last 11 years, you'll have an appreciation for why Trump is clearly leaning in the direction of issuing that full ponder. So, uh, again, from my interview with John Ponder uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, giving First, his backstory, his life as a criminal. I grew up in the product of a single-parent home, right? My dad left home at a very early age, and growing up in that environment, we kind of ran to the streets to validate our masculinity. So the streets led me to the drugs, drugs led me to the gangs, gangs led me to criminal activity, and that criminal activity led me to my very first set of handcuffs at 12 years old. So growing, you know, coming, growing up in that type of environment, uh, life just kind of spiraled, uh, spiraled out of control from there. Uh, caught my very first felony conviction at, at 16. 
16 years old, uh, and again, life was just uh, went to uh, turmoil from there. Uh, kept coming in and out of the prison systems, uh, systems in New York, systems in Nevada, uh, and then I, you know, wound up serving time in a maximum security United States federal penitentiary behind 50-foot walls. So it came a time on that journey where, you know, I was saying to myself, I'm, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, and looking back over the last 30 some odd years of my life, saying that I know that I know that life has to be more uh, than what it was I've been living. If somehow something was different, but never really knew what, what that difference was, and I surrendered my life to the Lord, asked Him to step in and change my life, and unmistakably He did. Turned my life around in a 180 degree turn in the other direction. So to turn around, the life change had come to me when I was uh, facing uh, the possibility of spending the next 23 years of my life in prison. Right? I know that I'm about to go before the judge, and the judge has the potential based off of my criminal history. That could have been the maximum. So when I found myself there in solitary confinement and a chaplain had come by the door and dropped the Bible inside the door in solitary confinement, uh, and I started to read the Bible, uh, and God really started speaking uh, into my heart. And it came a time in that solitary confinement where I invited Jesus to be the Lord of my life. And again, unmistakably, he stepped in, uh, and you know, I had surrendered my life to him, uh, went off to prison, and for, for me, behind those 50-foot walls, uh, I didn't go to prison in here. I went to Bible college. I went to school. I wanted to learn everything that I possibly can from all those mistakes that I made uh, to kind of transform my life, and out of that learning, uh, it, it God had impregnated me with the vision of Hope for Prisoners, and I, I came home and gave birth to his vision. It's an incredible story. You can hear the contrition that he went through, because he's fully accountable for everything that he did and he is also should be uh, held fully accountable in a laudatory sense for hope for prisoners uh, the vision that uh, the lord inspired in him uh, materialized in this way well, the secret sauce at Hope for Prisons is we work with men, women, and young adults that are exiting different arenas of our judicial system is to make sure that we're able to provide them with the supportive services and, and the training to help them to successfully not only get acclimated back into workplaces, but make sure there's mechanisms in place to help uh, once they get inside that workplace, they're going to be afforded every opportunity to thrive and be able to grow and then afforded every opportunity to succeed. Uh, we address the needs for them to get acclimated back into their family, and that has been a missed mark of reentry since forever. It's like no one's ever given the particular close attention to the men and women that are coming home from the system, that they have to get reconnected with, with their family, with their wives, their husbands, and particularly get reintegrated with their children. So it's imperative that there is a, a mechanism in place to help with that family reunification component, because if that's not right, then everything else in the world has a tendency to fall apart. But then on the back end of the process, the secret sauce has become a, a long-term 18-month process where we walk with people not only to help them to, to, to walk out all the incredible training that we provided for them, but to be able to be there for them to help them to navigate the different challenges they're going to be facing during that reintegration process. So 18-month program. This isn't uh, run through a couple of classes so I can get a grant from the the city or the county or the state and have a little niche business for myself. 18-month intensive program to help transform people and prepare them for life on the outside. And one of the other aspects of the secret sauce, which is really unique to Hope for Prisoners, and according to John Ponder, has made all the difference, mentorship 
by law enforcement. The law enforcement mentorship partnership, working with people who are formerly incarcerated, is so very important uh, to our community. Because if you think about it, the mission of our organization is to help men and women who come home from the prison system. We want to train them up, take their rightful positions in their home, the workforce, and inside the community. But if we're going to get men and women who are from this segment of the population to get out in the community and to never reoffend again, we have to instill in them a love and appreciation and respect for the rules and regulations of our community. We found that that gets enhanced when they're in relationship with the men and women who uphold in the law. And uh, John Ponder's walking the walk on that, too. When he was recognized last year at a White House ceremony on the occasion of the signing of the First Step Bill, that criminal justice reform measure that uh, President Trump signed that had bipartisan support in Congress, John Ponder was there with his best friend, You know who his best friend is? The last man to arrest him, the FBI agent that arrested John Ponder and sent him off to federal prison where he was facing, as he mentioned at the outset, 23 years had the judge not taken some mercy on him and sent him back to prison for another half dozen years. But as he said, those half dozen years were in prison. That was Bible college for Ponder. So what are the results from Hope for Prisoners? So um, absolutely, our success rate uh, is absolutely phenomenal. It shows that, you know, more than 74 percent of our our folks who come through this, through our process, was successful in gaining full-time employment. Uh, And only 6 percent of those individuals return back to the prison system. It is something that we are extremely encouraged by. The more than 79 percent recidivism rate for this country, I think that we're knocking it out of the ballpark. And I think that that the law enforcement partnership is key in doing that. But if you turn the the coin over to the other side, think about what this level of the partnership is doing. It's helping men and women from law enforcement view people from this segment of the population that are out there really truly fighting for a second chance is helping them to see them uh, from a whole nother set of lenses. And that's what's really bridging that gap between the disconnect between law enforcement uh, and people inside the community. It's a remarkable story, a remarkable turnaround to think about uh, John Ponder sitting in federal prison just uh, a dozen years ago to what he and Hope for Prisoners and all the participants, including law enforcement out Las Vegas way, Clark County way, have accomplished in terms of saving lives, turning those lives around and saving their lives so they're productive citizens, and then also saving and protecting the lives of the law-abiding who are no longer preyed upon by these individuals. Uh, 80% recidivism rate in the country, 6% for those coming out of Hope for Prisoners. I'd say uh, that is a program that should be scaled nationally, and I hope it is, under John Ponder's stewardship, and probably a guy who's earned his full pardon for his past life which is certainly no part of his current one. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We go from a gentleman helping to affect peace on our streets, John Ponder, to uh, a gentleman who we will discuss the costs of war over the last century with. He uh, offers in his piece at Harper's, The Old Normal, three questions that should frame U.S. foreign policy. 
and U.S. military engagement. What free? What does freedom require? How much will it cost, and who will pay? By implication, as he gives a pretty comprehensive review of the last hundred years of America at war, we haven't done a very good job over the last hundred years of necessarily answering those questions, or at least not without revising our answers uh, in uh, real time as a conflicts developed. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Andrew Basovich, who is a professor emeritus of international relations and history at Boston U., president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a contributing editor to Harper's Magazine. As I mentioned, this is where his piece can be found. He's also the author of the book, The Age of Illusions, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory. Uh, professor Basovich, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. No, glad to be with you. Rather than going all the way back to uh, General Marshall and his address to West Point cadets in 1942, uh, although we'll get there, why don't we start with how the the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, distillation of the your book title, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory. That was, uh, as Francis Fukuyama famously said and then recanted, the end of... Uh, the end of history was at the, the Cold War. After America won, the world was going to be safe for democracy, and that was going to be the model of government that uh, took hold everywhere. Of course, that didn't happen, and he recognized that. But how did we otherwise squander our Cold War victory? Well, in a sense, the Fukuyama essay that you refer to offers a jumping-off point for the book. The book really is a short history of what I refer to as the post-Cold War era. That is to say, the period between fall of the Berlin Wall, when it appeared that the world was our oyster, and the election of Donald Trump as president in November 2016, Trump being elected by a deeply divided, deeply demoralized uh, electorate. And so the question I focus on is, how did we get from 1989, this time of euphoria, to 2016, when the nation is in its present condition? That's the story I try to tell. Well, let's go. Let's go back to that uh, squander. That squandering, uh, and uh, because of bad ideas, it seems to me from uh, reading your piece that there is a, a bad idea or a hubris that's uh, advanced a particular idea uh, that extended from General George Marshall's address in 1942 all the way to George W. Bush's address post 9/11 which is that Amer yep. American military would be a symbol of freedom and power. We were going to project military power the world over. Yeah, so Marshall, this, this address that Marshall uh, gave that you referred to, this is a speech to the graduating cadets uh, at West Point, May 1942, early days of World War II. And he sketched out in very broad terms what he thought the purpose of the war was, which is to make sure that the, all the world, understood and in a sense deferred to uh, American power and the American conception of freedom. Well, what's happened since, and in particular what's happened in the last, let's say, two decades, is that we have very substantially changed our conception of freedom and have found that uh, the effort to impose our notion of freedom on others produces a heck of a lot of pushback. And we've also found, uh, very distressingly, that American military power, although very great, uh, you know, doesn't work everywhere. And it didn't work in Afghanistan. Uh, didn't really work in Iraq, mm -hmm. uh, and has cost us dearly, and has probably cost others even more dearly. And this is the attraction of uh, non-interventionist, uh, a non-interventionist foreign policy. Uh, this is part of why it wasn't just Trump, but it was also even Democrats that voted for. 
the use of force in Iraq who have recanted because of the results of how those efforts were prosecuted, the costs that were imposed, as you describe, and just the realization of the limits from, from really from Vietnam to present day. You are absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the critique I offer in this uh, short book is not a critique that picks on any one party or any particular president, because I think that the folly of our post uh, post-Cold War uh, policies really it's been a bipartisan project, nor am I, embra- am I blaming the intellectuals because it is members of the political class that embraced these defective ideas and tried to put them into effect. And the, I, think, I think the post-9-11 period is probably the most vivid uh, example. You know, the 9-11 attack happens, and uh, the Bush administration substantially supported by others, to include many Democrats. Right. Besides, we're going to go invade a country and transform it into a democracy, even though that country had nothing to do with 9-11. And, uh, you know, we're still living with the results of that disaster. Uh, but what about uh, sort of the establishment uh, thinkers, uh, both the intellectuals as well as the foreign policy professionals, that, uh, you know, move with all the alacrity of, a, of, a, of an aircraft carrier, um, there doesn't seem to be uh, the, uh, the 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 thoughtfulness and the uh, paradigm shift that is required, given as you describe, you know, a hundred years of history of sticking to this idea. Well, I, I this is this is one of the things I write about in the Harper's essay that you referred to. In some senses, I think there is no foreign policy debate. Uh, there is indeed a consensus in favor of militarized interventionism. And the reason there's no policy debate is because of the the, the fiction, the absolute made-up story, uh, that the only real alternative to militarized global leadership is what people call isolationism. Right. One of the things I argue is there was no isolationism, but, but there is a realistic alternative uh, to militarized uh, you know, global leadership, and that is a policy of restraint, of being more... Mm prudent and cautious in when and where we intervene. And, and is uh, one of the, the things technology making us um, uh, more willing to cling to this idea of military interventionism because you can lower the human costs of war through drones and the like? Bingo. You are exactly right. I mean, that, that, that really, in my book, I talk about that being one of the major innovations of President Obama and his administration when he became president. Uh, a lot of Americans had had their fill of war because of the debacle of Iraq. Uh, and Obama promised big change, but the big change was not more restraint. It was moving toward a, a model of interventionism that, as you just suggested, relied on drones, relied on airstrikes, small groups of very special forces uh, on, on missions of limited duration. So U.S. casualties went down. Uh, Therefore, the American people tune out doesn't mean that the intervention of the uh, interventions of the Obama era were any more successful. And there, the, probably the most illustrative example would be uh, Libya, where we intervened, overthrew Gaddafi. Gaddafi created a mess, and the country's still a mess 
to the present day. Very interesting piece, great historical perspective, The Old Normal, this uh, piece by Professor Andrew Basevich in Harper's Magazine. He's a professor emeritus of international relations and history at Boston U, president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, contributing editor to Harper's, and the book, The Age of Illusions, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Mike Bloomberg was in Salt Lake City licking his wounds. See what I did there? Licking his wounds after uh, Wednesday night's debate performance. I don't know. All the days run together. Anyway, here was his assessment of his performance. So how was your night last night? Look, the real winner in the debate last night was Donald Trump. Because I worry that we may very well be on the way to nominating somebody who cannot win in November. And if we choose a candidate who appeals to a small base like Senator Sanders, it will be a fatal error. Yeah, yeah, but the funny thing is, we talked about this uh, a bit yesterday with the Monmouth poll. Uh, Bernie Sanders' actual standing in, among Democrat primary voters is broadly a favorable one. Seventy percent of Democrat primary voters have a favorable view of Sanders. Only 19 have a negative view. That's a big spread. That is a strong fave-on-fave ratio. And it turns out that he is the second choice of many Democrat primary voters if their first choice doesn't come in. So the idea that if Bernie were to continue piling up primary and caucus victories, like the one he's anticipated to have tomorrow in Vegas and Nevada, that uh, you wouldn't have a majority of the Democrat Party fold in with him and say, yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with him being the nominee. That's a lie that's being told to the Democrat primary electorate by a Democrat elite that doesn't want Bernie Sanders. And there was another version of that uh, op-ed by a former Chicago mayor. I know him well, Tiny Dancer, because he's little and he used to be a ballerina. Rahm Emanuel, that um, Bernie Sanders is an actual he's actually an insider. He's not the outsider that he says he is. Yeah, well, good luck. Good luck, Rahm and Democrat elites of trying to convince people that somebody who's been banging on the door doesn't even consider himself really a Democrat, a member of the Democratic Party, as Tiny Dancer concedes, but he's an insider. He's a socialist, but he's an insider of the Democratic Party. Clinton world, Obama world don't want him, but he's an insider. Okay, all right, well, you run with that. It doesn't seem like you're doing a very good job of convincing a majority of the party to which you affiliate. Maybe you're a lot more out of step than is Bernie Sanders. A lot of wishful thinking happening here. Now, Bloomberg was able to extract his one, one, maybe one of two good moments he had at the debate in Vegas. This was where he distinguished himself from the rest of the field, and he doctored it, and he's getting called on doctoring this a little bit by extending the period of silence on stage after he asked rhetorically the field this question. I'm the only one here that I think that's ever started a business. Is that fair? Now, it was about two seconds on stage, if you remember. Of course, nothing would last this long in the context of a debate. 
but it extends it for dramatic effect. Okay. And there it is. A good moment, but how much currency does being an entrepreneur have among Democrat primary voters? This just in. They're the party of government, big government. They see society through the lens of government. This is why 7 in 10 have a favorable view of somebody who's been a self-styled socialist for his entire life. Somebody who honeymooned at the tender age of 46 in Moscow in 1988 and uh, extolled the virtues of the Soviets at the time. Peggy Noonan has an interesting piece that I generally agree with in the Wall Street Journal. She enjoyed the debate much more than I did. I mean, it's a low bar to talk about this being the best Democrat uh, presidential debate in years, which is how she describes it. But she does describe the, the choices Bloomberg and Bernie are presenting effectively. And this is as much for a general election audience as for the primary audience. Bloomberg is presenting the you can stomach me argument. And Bernie Sanders is the you can stomach socialism. Yeah, you may have some concerns about socialism. You can take it. It's going to be fine. You may have and Bloomberg is you may have some concerns about me. You may find me charmless and charismaless and sort of fastidious and testy and elitist. Not particularly likable, but you can stomach me because of my competency. Uh, If that is how it unfolds, you can stomach socialism versus you can stomach me. If it's about Bloomberg's personality versus any trepidations about socialism that most of the Democrat primary electorate has clearly already overcome, then that is a choice that Bernie Sanders wins all day long. And again, going back to where the party is at this point and the arguments that the party made, the establishment made on behalf of Hillary Clinton that Hillary Clinton's been making since she lost in 2016. Electoral College, you got to get rid of the Electoral College. Whoever has the most votes wins. Well, how do you go to your convention and deny Bernie Sanders if he has the most delegates associated with getting the most votes, even if he doesn't clear the threshold of a majority, and say, yeah, we want to get rid of the Electoral College as a matter of point, and this is what we've said ever since November of 2016. Because it should be the most votes, who, uh, whoever gets the most votes wins, except when it comes to our party's nominee. Good luck making that argument in the face of the Bernie bros. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. big college campus now in America. It's not limited to uh, college campuses. It's not even limited to uh, the realm of education generally, but that's where we'll start at the local level, at the K through 12 level. Wisconsin's second largest school district refusing to back off a policy of keeping minor students transgender experimentation secret from their parents, despite a lawsuit that was filed this week, a lawsuit by a group of 14 parents filed against the Madison Metropolitan School District in Wisconsin after the school district refused to alter its policy of concealing children's trans behavior-related medical records from parents no matter how young the child is. 
The district oversees children as young as preschoolers and teaches gender identity politics to all ages, which some research suggests may contribute to children identifying as transgender, a Brown University uh, study that was um, that, that was uh, as effectively quashed as possible about uh, trans being a social contagion in part. But uh, that I digress. And we'll talk more about this in the context of identitarian politics a little bit later in the show with uh, Professor Eric Hoffman, as well as Spencer Clavin from Claremont Review of Books. Let's just focus on this issue here, because this issue is about um, in loco parentis, which uh, these days means the schools are in loco. Uh, this is your children are not your children, both with when they're within our walls and really generally, because obviously the implication of concealing medical records from parents doesn't stop at the schoolhouse doors. The district policy at the heart of the lawsuit states, quote, school staff, school staff, shall not disclose any information that may reveal the student's gender identity to others, including parents or guardians and other school staff, unless legally required to do so or unless the student has authorized such disclosure. It also says school staff will, quote, discuss with the student contingency, with the student contingency plans in the event their privacy is compromised. School and student allied against the parent. One of the court filings notes the district's attempts to deceive include, quote, to evade the state law, that requires Wisconsin schools to give parents access to all education records. The gender support plan form directs teachers to keep the paperwork in your confidential files, not in student records. So you don't have to disclose uh, this, despite that the that, that requirements for parental approval of activities such as attending prom or taking a Tylenol. But no parental approval required, much less inform uh, you know, in, in, information provided when students are engaged in trans-related activities, trans-related behavior, uh, including any medical records associated with that. Pretty remarkable. In 2017, by the way, this is happening everywhere, and it will be coming to a school district near you. 2017, California public school teacher, at a California public school, I should say, kindergartner did a gender reveal to classmates who, owned, who went home afterwards with tears and confusion to parents who had not been informed of the event beforehand. Last year in a Madison elementary school, no surprise, male science teacher showed all the K-5 students in his uh, classroom a gender reveal video to come out to children as transgender because that's an appropriate event for a school, much less for K-5 through students. You will be made to celebrate. Madison's recommended classroom list of uh, for the, uh, the the trans curriculum, gender identity curriculum, also includes a picture group for grades, picture book for grades one through three about Harvey Milk, Pride, the story of Harvey Milk and the rainbow flag, grades one to three. Uh, Milk was a pedophile and a cult enthusiast a huge supporter of Jim Jones, you know, Jim Jones of the Jonestown Massacre. Also, for the record, if anybody's interested in uh, helping to un-gaslight 
kids being gaslit about Harvey Milk, some sort of patriot, uh, martyr for gay rights. Harvey Milk was not murdered because of his sexual orientation, something that even Senator, now Senator, Dianne Feinstein conceded. It was a petty disagreement over local politics. It had nothing to do with him being gay. But okay, a coloring book for ages one to three. Uh, what's happening at the collegiate level? Notre Dame University. <laughs> the gender studies program, why does University of Notre Dame have a gender studies program? Great question. Hosted a panel discussion recently entitled Affirming Care for Gender Diverse Youth. Four speakers, all affiliated with Indiana University, all coming from the same place. Boys can identify as girls. Girls can be boys. Boys and girls can be something other than a boy or girl. And uh, uh, surgically altering children is, uh, in, in accord with how they identify, saves their lives. When we talk to insurance companies, said one of the panelists, who say, this is just cosmetic. I say, this is saving these kids' lives. Here's the data. There are no studies that show differently. Well, that's not true. The most thorough follow-up of sex-reassigned people extending over 30 years conducted in Sweden, where the culture is also strongly supportive of trans, documents their lifelong mental unrest. The study found that 10 to 15 years after surgical reassignment, the suicide rate of those who had undergone sex-reassignment surgery rose to 20 times that of comparable peers. So it may very well be a matter of life and death, but it's uh, in the other direction. Uh, Extra panelists also declared gender dysphoria never goes away, except there's all sorts of academic research studying desistance in children suggests, suggests that very few persisted wanting to transition by the time they reach adulthood. But by that time, they've already been cut up by these ideologues. No opposition to this ideological session at Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame. Father John Jenkins, president in absentia. What a disgrace. Catholic institution for people who hate Catholicism and apparently don't care much about children and their well-being either. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So the uh, lawsuit filed by the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team over a quote-unquote equal pay is in the news again because uh, there were some new documents filed in court in advance of a uh, trial that's scheduled to start on May 5th of this year. The uh, U.S. Women's National Soccer Team seeking $66 million in damages as compensation for their claim of gender discrimination. So uh, we have to go back through this again, just as we have to do with dispelling the 72 cents on the dollar mythology of the left when it comes to 
compensation of the private sector men versus women generally. This was pointed out back in the fall, but let's go through it again. There are differences in the compensation between the men and women soccer players, but their deals are structured very differently. And so what the women's soccer team is doing with their lawsuit is cherry-picking the bonus structure rather than looking at the totality of the deal. Because if you look at the totality of the deal, women's soccer players actually at the national level actually make more than the men's even though they bring in less revenue. So what we may have here is data to suggest a discrimination suit by the men's soccer team ultimately, but let's just start with this fact. The United States Soccer Federation in uh, one of its filings pointed out that it received $9 million from FIFA, international governing body, for the men reaching the second round of the 2014 World Cup. $9 million for the United States Soccer Federation for the men getting to the second round in the 2014 World Cup. Two million for the women winning in 2015 and four million for their victory in 19. So they don't generate the same gate. They don't generate the same merchandise sales. They don't generate the same revenue for the sponsoring organization. Nine million for the men six years ago for getting to the second round for the women winning the last two times, 2015 and 2019, a total of six million. In most businesses, you know, the revenue you're generating has something to do with your salary. But I know those rules are off when it comes to the politicization of compensation. Here's how it works. The women's team has guaranteed salary thanks to their collective bargaining agreement. They receive a base of 100 grand each year, an additional salary of 67.5 to 72.5 for playing in the National Women's Soccer League. Male soccer players do not have such an agreement. The agreement means women's soccer players earn a guaranteed salary of 167.5 to 172.5 that range. On top of that, they are paid bonuses. The men's team only earns bonuses. Those bonuses can be larger, but that's because they don't have a guaranteed base salary. In addition, the women's team receives benefits, including a 401k and health insurance, as well as maternity leave and injury protection. The men's team does not receive those benefits. If you actually look at the total salary, if the men and women ever did play in and win 20 friendlies a year, these sort of hypothetical per game compensation where the women were paid an average bonus amount, a woman's player would earn more uh, than the man's player. I'm glad they filed the suit and they're planning on litigating it. And I sure as heck hope the Soccer Federation doesn't settle so that all of this can come to the light of day and those who propound these preposterous, fact-free, ideological arguments about compensation can be uh, shown for the flim-flammers that they are. This is the Dan Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com, on Twitter at Dan Prof Show and at Dan Prof. This is a great topic. Uh, this is uh, what I got into radio to do, to talk about the big ideas, not just the banality of electoral politics. Uh, Zach Bochamp writing in Vox.com. That's a left-wing outlet. Identity politics isn't hurting liberalism, it's saving it. More identity politics. What the critics lambaste as an attack on liberalism identity politics, 
is actually its best form. The logical extension of liberalism's core commitment to social equality and democracy adapted to address modern sources of inequality, writes Bochamp. A liberalism that rejects identity politics is a liberalism for the powerful, one that relegates the interests of marginalized groups to second-class status. To say that liberalism and identity politics are at odds is to misunderstand our political situation. Identity politics isn't merely compatible with liberalism. It is, in fact, liberalism's truest face. If liberalism wishes to succeed in the 21st century, it shouldn't reject identity politics. It should embrace it. That's Zach Bochamp. And this uh, Vox.com is supposed to be sort of on the vanguard of left thought in America. That's the lesson that Zach Bochamp and the, I would say, cultural Marxists in his ranks are taking away from the electoral results in the West over the last four years, from the U.S. to the U.K., Brexit and Boris, to the devastating election results for the left in France, in Italy, the Netherlands, Germany. Okay. Just in case you thought, well, you know, the moderate, moderate play, those who don't want to go, you know, full gender as a social construct. There's, there's got to be some give there, right? No. Wrong. Entitlements and burdens based on race or gender or orientation or identification, that can't be sustained, can it? That can't be what the left is really about, is it? Yeah. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Eric Kaufman, professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, and author of the book White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. And he has also penned a um, provocative piece at uh, lawliberty.org on the left and why the left is losing. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's great to be here, Dan. Do you subscribe to my reaction to Zach Bochamp's argument in favor of identity politics? I think it's you know a bit suicidal for left-wing parties to go that route. And I think, as you said, if we just look at the results, the Labour Party here in the tw- recent uh, British election got their worst result since 1935. And as you mentioned, the French, the Danish, and the Italian left, main left parties have had their worst results ever. Um, and similarly in Germany and Sweden, and some of the worst results even going back to 1908. So really this shift from talking about class and economics and economic redistribution to talking about identity politics and culture has really not paid dividends for the left at all. And so I think it's probably a very bad strategy. And, and you develop that a little bit more, why they can't move <coughs> away from what Zach Bochamp is arguing that they do. You reference... Uh, David Goodhart, who recently said it's easier for right-wing parties to move left on economics and left-wing parties to move right on culture. Why is that? Well, the key here, I think, is a kind of political correctness and taboos that emerge within activist circles in the left, which are very important in parties, such as the Labour Party. So the Labour Party is largely controlled by a sort of activist group called Momentum, who very much buy into identity politics. And it's not just that you know, it's not just that some people believe in something like trans, that the idea that gender is something that you just self-identify with and is not connected to biology, but it's that they can then make that a taboo so you can be expelled from the party if you don't sign up to this career. And this is something that even since their devastating loss, they've been tearing themselves apart over the trans issue. It sort of indicates that this purity spiral is driven by these taboos. So it's not just a matter of uh, switching from economic to cultural identity issues, but it's also 
a matter of taboos which act as force multipliers and actually make it impossible for moderates, even if they disagree, to express those views. It seems to me that the left, and, and this is an argument, so I'd be interested, maybe this is too conventional, the argument is the left is always playing the long game. They recognize that, yeah, it may be an insular minority of people in America or in the West right now that think gender is a social construct and that, that you shouldn't have rights conferred or privileges really conferred based on how you identify in terms of your gender. We understand that we're in the minority now, but we also understand that if we continue to relentlessly make the case and relentlessly impose our will within the cultural institutions that we largely control, that over time, a generation or two, we'll have the same success in imposing our orthodoxy that we have had, say, for example, with redefinition of marriage and the gay rights movement. Yeah, and I think that is a powerful argument. And I know, I mean, there's a writer called Ed West who has a book coming out in a couple of weeks, which which makes that exact argument that the right tends to win elections, but they tend to lose the culture. And I think that has been the pattern. And you're right that the cultural institutions, universities and media and so on have become progressively captured by the progressive left. And so it is an open question as to whether the strategy might win culturally. And I don't think it's clear which way that's going to go. I would say one of the things you see in the young population is a growing split between people who, let's say, favor free speech over emotional safety, and then the other side favors emotional safety. So I think their arguments are getting some traction amongst that youngest cohort, but it's not clear that it's convincing everybody. So, But I agree with you that they do seem to be more successful in marching through the cultural institutions than they do in winning elections. It's just that right now, and certainly for the foreseeable future, for the Labour Party to win pushing these themes is essentially going to be impossible for decades. So I, I think they're going to have to have a rethink, or they're simply going to be out of power. Are they more uh, danger of self-elimination on those issues like we're talking about the, the using the trans issue as an example of a cultural issue or on a matter like immigration, which you write about in your new book, White Shift, where that is more than just a cultural issue. It's also a public safety issue properly, properly conceived and, and argued. And uh, and the idea that uh, they can stake out a position as extreme as, say, the left in this country talking about the elimination of 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 such a thing as a, an illegal immigrant because there should be no such thing as a border so there can be no such thing as an illegal border crossing and we should also eliminate a border enforcement uh, uh, agencies like ICE as well and, and Customs and Border Protection. Staking out an ex- such an extreme position on that issue seems to me like it may be more dangerous electorally for the left than staking out the trans issue. You're right, yeah. So immigration is an issue that a lot of voters care about in, in Europe and in, in Britain. Um, and it's it's Labour's inability to speak to that which, which um, helped them lose the election, just as it was the people who wanted to remain in the European Union, their inability to address people's worries about um, free migration from the European Union that, that also cost the remain side, the Brexit referendum. So, yeah, that is the key issue. And in fact, in the book, I really talk about how immigration is really becoming the key battleground uh, in Western countries, partly because they're undergoing ethnocultural shifts in which ethnic majorities are declining. And it's, it's in that context that the immigration issue rises up people's agendas and, and, what you see is that as immigration numbers rose in Europe and in Britain, immigration rose up people's priority lists and started to actually shape elections in a serious way. So 
Um, and, and of course, part of the, the the problem for the left is it seems as though uh, voters who are who are motivated uh, by wanting less immigration are more likely to switch party to go to conservative parties than voters who are pro-immigration but well-off. So that kind of pro-immigration, well-off person who voted to remain in the European Union, fewer of them went over to the Labour Party. So in that exchange on immigration, a pro-immigration position tends to lose you uh, votes. And I think there's something similar happened in the U.S. too in terms of committed people who wanted less immigration went over to Trump in a way that the pro-immigration um, conservative voters did not go over to Clinton in the same way. So again, that, that exchange seems to go more for the conservative voters. And that's kind of another reason why um, the left taking a very pro-immigration position is, is arguably uh, shooting itself in the foot. Sean Rosenberg, who's a sociologist at UC Irvine, recently penned uh, a paper suggesting that the end of democracy in the West is upon us. It's going to be replaced, per these most recent election results, with a populist uh, right-wing regimes that are going to be authoritarian. Uh, and the reason that they're so popular is because that they uh, offer simple solutions to very complex problems. I mean, uh, that there are gaping blind spots in his argument, as far as I'm concerned. He is Eric Kaufman. He's a professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. Author of the book White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. And also check out his piece, which I'll tweet out, uh, Why the Left is Losing. That's at lawliberty.org. Professor Kaufman, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thanks so much, Dan. Bye. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, following on our conversation with uh, Professor Eric Kaufman from the University of London, we've got a uh, real world example of a, a reformation on the scale of a David Horowitz. Gerfried Ambrosch is a heterodox academic. He's the author of The Poetry of Punk, The Meaning Behind Punk Rock and Hardcore Lyrics, which I, I want to explore that, particularly for the study that's out about pop songs right now. But first, we have to discuss his former life as a radical. He is also a Ph.D. in literary and cultural studies, I would add. Gerfrud Ambrose, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Let's start with this piece in Colette.com, Your Former Life as a Radical, and really the intellectual, philosophical journey that you took that you uh, document very nicely. You were something akin to an Occupy Wall Streeter. You adopted, at least briefly, some conspiracy theories that uh, are popular in Charlie Sheehan circles. And then, and then you had a bit of an awakening. So describe uh, you know, where you were and how you came to be where you are. Sure. So um, most of the stuff I'm ascribing in, in the article, that was before Occupy was a movement. So that wasn't necessarily like when that happened, I was already sort of on my way out. Mm -hmm. So what I'm describing was more like the early 2000s. Okay. So that's, that's when I, I would consider myself a radical. But it's sort of the same disposition, though, you were coming from that. You were coming exactly, from that place. Yeah. yeah. So I was, I was definitely still sympathetic to the Occupy movement. But as I said, that was sort of like already 
part of my gradual just like leaving the faith, if you will. Yeah, okay. So you're coming sort of from that place, generally speaking, forget the your particular iteration of it. And then you had uh, some sort of awakening, because I mean, I think part of what we're trying to understand, and you get to it at the end of your piece, is this question of, is it even possible to reason with Bernie Bros? Is it possible to reason with Antifa? Is it even worth the time? And you suggest that it's not going to be easy, but it is because you're a living example of it. That's exactly what I'm arguing. You know, I was in this, this echo chamber, like far left, whatever. I was, I was more like anarchist leaning, but still, you could say it's, you know, called like far left, ties to Antifa um, as it existed back then. It was a different you know, iteration of the same thing that exists right now. But, you know, for me, it was reason and evidence. Like in the long run, that's really what helped me get out of it. And so I don't think radicals, you know, even though they're under the spell, if you will, under the sway, you know, of that ideology, you know, there's still people. And I think there's still a point in reasoning with them. And for sure it was for me, even though I, you know, nobody really sort of like, you know, set me down and reasoned with me. It was just like through reading literature, you know, especially after the whole New Atheist thing happened in the United States, you know, or when that happened, because that's sort of the lifeline that was sort of like thrown to me there was, I read Sam Harris, Kristen Hitchens, these guys, right? Okay. And suddenly I was confronted with these ideas that were more about, you know, reason and logic. The reason it appealed to me at first was because, of course, the far-left ideology, you know, like atheism is a part of that, right? So that was sort of like the connection. But then I had to, as, as, I, as I was getting into that, I had to apply the same logic and the same, the same reasoning to my own beliefs. I mean, so you read Christopher Hitchens, you're intellectually curious enough to be reading thinkers like uh, Hitchens, and you, okay, he's an atheist, he agrees with me on that, but he doesn't agree with me about the importance of small L liberal democracy and the associated values, and so maybe I need to question where I'm coming from in terms of my sort of ends justify any means approach. Right, and that really was the approach I was hooked on, right? I mean, this this was the idea, you know, the idea that nothing could be worse than the society we're currently living in. However destructive, any, any sort of radical change would be a positive, right? So that was the assumption. I mean, it was like a religion in that sense, you know, because it really blocked your ability to see through the smokescreen that was created there. And then what you're describing, too, is... Um... Uh, and I think you reference in your piece, if I'm recalling, the, the unscrupulous optimism, a term that Schopenhauer used to describe utopians, which is things can only get better. I'm not going to give any consideration to the fact that what I'm saying could actually uh, uh, re- result in retrogression as opposed to progress. Right. In hindsight, it's so weird that that would never come up. Right. I mean, this idea that just because you have this, this righteous belief but that would automatically translate into positive change, not considering the retrogressions that have always happened, right? Yeah, you see this in politics all the time, including in, in conservative circles, the circles I've been in uh, all of my adult life, which is the people who adopt the Sir Galahad theory of politics. I will win this campaign or this issue because I am more pure of heart. Well, it just, you know, it just doesn't work that way. It's a, it's a, a test of organizational ethos and persuasion and all sorts of other things rather than just your own sense of your own purity. Incremental progress. Right? That's, that's where it's at, right? And that's, that's the, the one thing that radicals reject, really. You know, it's like this idea that a politics is about negotiation. It's about compromise, you know? This, this was never part of, 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 that, of that ideology, of that belief. It's always about, um, you know, 
we're the righteous ones. We're gonna we're gonna overthrow the government or overthrow the system. You know, capitalism was was considered evil. So, you know, this this whole idea of like that there's people out there that need to be reasoned with, right? Even even though you think your your belief might be the 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 right one, um, still, you know, just the act of forcing your belief onto someone, you know, this, which which is a very uh, authoritarian, almost totalitarian thing to do. That that would create freedom, which ultimately was 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 the goal, right? Like for this kind of like really like absolute freedom, um, you know that that's just that's just insane thinking about it in in, in hindsight. So so we understand how you got out, uh, sort of speak. Mm-hmm. How did you get in? Um, because you you make mention in your piece that your dad was a cop, and so I'm wondering if you just this was sort of it started as like a repudiation of your parents' bourgeois values or something like this. Not at all. Not at all. Because my, uh, to be honest, like my, my mom was kind of a hippie, right? Which is, which is weird thinking about that. She, she ended up marrying a cop. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that, that really, at least not on the surface level, I, you know, you, you, probably you could sit me down with a psychologist and, you know, maybe dig up something. Um, but as far as I can tell, it wasn't that, you know, like rebellion. You know that that rebellious phase. I was drawn to the counterculture through my my love for for punk rock music. Ah, right? that was sort of like the the gateway. And uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, my, my book, The Poetry of Punk. That sort of sort of like that's where we come full circle here, because a lot of those lyrics they had you know those radical tropes in them. And mm. when you're you know 15, 16 years old. Uh, you read about these, you know, like, uh, you know, F this, F that, F the system, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, you know, you, there's, there's some appeal to that, right? No, I get it. Well, or, yeah, and, and hey, look, I mean, talking about conversion stories, even Johnny Rotten's had a conversion, you know, at uh, at this age. Uh, absolutely, you absolutely. Know? Like, he, he completely rejected the, the, the idea of, 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 you know, anarchism, basically, even though he, he was the one sort of like who put punk and anarchism together, you know, back in the 70s. It's interesting. He is Gerfried, excuse me, Gerfried Ambrose, heterodox academic, author of the book, The Poetry of Punk, The Meaning Behind Punk Rock and Hardcore Lyrics. And uh, do check out his piece, which I'll tweet out at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. My Former Life as a Radical, uh, a David Horowitz-like conversion story. Gerfried, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Sometimes I might be a giver on time Stop a traffic line Your future dream is a shopping scheme Cause I You're listening to The Dan Proft Show On the Salem Radio Network Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. As we discussed yesterday, President Trump are waiting to see how things play out with the Roger Stone case. Yes, he was sentenced to 40 months in prison for the crimes for which he was convicted. But there is this pending appeal based on a tainted jury, a number of jurors, really, that uh, Amy Berman Jackson, the federal judge in the case, may take up and... Um, May grant 
prior to Stone having to begin his sentence. So uh, President Trump said he's watching. And Roger is definitely a character. I'm following this very closely, and I want to see it play out. How can you have a jury pool tainted so badly? It's not fair. It's not fair. And, you know, it's not happening to a lot of other people. They say he lied. But other people lied, too. Just to mention, Comey lied. McCabe lied. You don't know who these people are? Just trust me. They all lied. I think we've become familiar with them. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Adam Mill, an attorney specializing in labor and employment and public administration law, contributor to the Federalist American Greatness and the Daily Caller. Adam, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, great. So before we get to the point that you make in a recent piece for amgreatness.com about the Foreign Agents Registration Act, what about the first? Uh, what about the point that the president just made that we played uh, about uh, the uh, standard for prosecution for lying under oath? Yeah, I almost wonder if somebody in the White House isn't following me and, and reading my my pieces because uh, you know I, I I hear some of the things that the president says and I'm like, hey, I just made that point. Uh, so the president has made this point over and over again that he can tell he can intervene in any prosecution. Uh, to he can comment on it, he can criticize it, he can criticize the Justice Department, he can criticize a prosecutor, and everybody is just losing their mind over that. There was a big open letter that came out uh, signed by uh, a thousand or two thousand bureaucrat right. former DOJ attorneys, all saying that he's violating the Constitution and he's violating the uh, uh, you know the cherished traditions of the independence of our dedicated uh, law enforcement professionals. And you know what part of the Constitution does it violate for the elected president to criticize uh, an amok prosecutor? Oh, the part they made up. You know, it's great. To, it's easy to be an expert in the law when you can just make up the law. And, and and there's nothing in the Constitution that prohibits the president from saying, "Hey, that's unfair. That's an unjust result." In fact. There are two provisions of the Constitution that make that not only okay, but perhaps give him the duty to correct those injustices. Uh, the golden thread of control between the ballot box and the, the prosecutor passes through the president. It's the elected president that the voters depend on to exercise any kind of control or set boundaries uh, over these prosecutors who have just incredible power over people. Well, so the well, first – yeah, well, go ahead. Well, well, the other thing, too, is – I mean, just logically – if he has the power to pardon the individual in question, how would he not have the power to comment on it? I mean, it's just just logically, that's insane. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, President uh, Obama uh, back in in April of 2016. I mentioned this in the in the article. Uh, it was in an interview, and he was asked, you know, what do you think of this uh, FBI investigation into Hillary Clinton? Uh, and he said something to the effect of, oh, well, Hillary Clinton would never intentionally put the United States in, in danger. Well, lo and behold, we found out uh, all these years later that that very next month, the um, the FBI was already working on the exoneration statement. And what did they rely on to exonerate her? Uh, it was It was the, you know, she did. She lacked the intent. It's not a legal uh, term or a legal standard for what she was charged with, but she was she was exonerated nevertheless. So we have Obama interfering in the Clinton investigation with a public statement. Arguably, he's 
he's following his constitutional authority to do so. But when Donald Trump does it, I mean, Dan, you know, every time Donald Trump does something, if if he's the one doing it, it's a crisis and it's a violation of the Constitution, supposedly. But 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 so he has the right to he has the right to pardon, as you pointed out, and he's also the elected head of the executive branch. I want to uh, pick up our conversation about these seeming two tiers of justice in America, at least uh, when it comes to. You know, political camps, as you're describing. More with Adam Mill right after this. Fixers and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. with Adam Mill on the Dan Prof Show. Adam is an attorney specializing in labor and employment and public administration law, contributor to the Federalist, American Greatness, and Greatness.com, and the Daily Caller. And uh, this this uh, notion of uh, if you're a, a member of the FBI, if you're an employee of the FBI, at least at the highest levels, and you lie, then uh, sorry will suffice. If you're a Trump affiliate, then it won't in the case of Flynn or Papadopoulos. But you also write recently for AmGreatness.com about the Foreign Agents Registration Act and how that seems to be applied unequally, too, depending on who your political affiliations are. Uh, Paul Manafort gets jammed up by it uh, and convicted of failing to register while applying his trades in foreign countries with foreign clients. But yet others that are in the Obama world or the Clinton world do not. Yeah, I mean, this this is the most abused law, and I would say that if we were going to do one thing to kind of neuter the political abuse that, that the Department of Justice is guilty of, I, I, let's get rid of FARA because, because it's only used as a political weapon. Uh, what we're finding is that guys like Hunter Biden and uh, the Podesta brother, the Podesta was the um, – uh, I forget John and Tony confused, but one of them was the Clinton campaign manager. The other one was a lobbyist. Right. Well, both Podesta and uh, uh, Manafort lobbied for the exact same guy. Uh, he was a kind of a Russian-Ukrainian oligarch, and uh, Manafort's in solitary confinement. He's been there for like three years, violates human rights standards. And Podesta's, uh, you know, in, in Rome, gazing upon his uh, wine collection in uh, in his chalet there, <laughs> in one of his many houses. He's a very rich man, and, uh, and and nobody can touch him. And you just go, you can just go. It's a very very long list of people who, you know, if you're on one side, you're fine. You don't have to register. If you're on the other side, uh, they jam you up. And so I I would recommend repealing it because we're, what we're seeing is it's not only used as a way of 
prosecuting and punishing political uh, opponents, but it's also a pretext for spying on people too. I mean, Carter Page was declared a, you know, Comey signed an affidavit saying, oh, I think Carter Page is a, is a foreign agent, so we need to spy on him. Well, that gave him a window into the whole Trump campaign. And, you know, I don't have to go into that. I mean, I think your listeners know well enough how, sure. how egregious that is. So you take that away. I mean, take that law away because it's not being used for its intended purpose. It's almost never being used for its intended purpose. It, it, as far as I can tell, it's only being used as a political weapon in a way to spy on Americans and, and criminally punish a political opponents of the Department of Justice. Speaking of, of that, uh, the uh, illicit FISA warrants on page, which is something that even now FBI Director Christopher Wray has said those warrants were improperly obtained. Uh, and that's the need to reform the FISA court process and so forth. Uh, could you make a fruit of the poisonous tree argument for Trump pardoning everybody, every, every, uh, Flynn, Papadopoulos, Manafort, everybody? It's an investigation that should have never happened because the surveillance warrant should have never been issued. All these people have been convicted of crimes that they wouldn't have otherwise even been investigated for, had for not, but for this investigation. So it's all fruit of the poisonous tree, and I'm get, I'm getting rid of all of it. Uh, so Papadopoulos and uh, and uh, Flynn, I would pardon because they were both. Uh, basically set up in these phony interviews that were intended to catch them in a mismatch between what they said in the interview and what was record- the FBI possessed recordings of the conversations that happened before. Manafort, Manafort, I think they got him on some tax evasion. Well, if he didn't pay his taxes, I don't have a problem with him getting punished for that. Right. Uh, but the but, but yeah, the illegal lobbying, I would definitely commute his sentence. He's been in prison in solitary confinement for a very long time. He's he's served enough time. It's time for him to to get out. Uh, and as far as Stone, yes, Stone is a fruit of the poisonous tree kind of kind of example. But you know, this whole thing with with um, the FISA warrant, Dan, I, it, it's it's really a shameful thing that uh, Comey did uh, when he start he when he signed off on the original warrant against Carter Page, he certified under his own personal signature to the FISA court that there was no other way to get this information. Well, a month before he did, he signed that certification, Carter Page wrote an open letter to the Washington Post. You can Google it and you can find it and read it for yourself, in which he offered directly to Comey to sit for an interview, and he cl- claimed that he was innocent of any wrongdoing. He knew he knew that the FBI was uh, being peppered with these uh, accusations. And he wanted to clear the whole thing up. Comey never did the interview because if he had done the interview, then he couldn't have justified the uh, the, the spying. So Comey and I wrote a letter, I wrote a piece on this. Uh, Comey should be James Comey should be arrested. That was a deliberate. Uh, I mean, these these mistakes that people say were made in the FISA warrant of, yeah. of Carter Page. They're not mistakes. They're deceptions. And they're I mean, they're just it's incredibly all, horrible how how many there have been. All the mistakes uh, redound to the benefit of the prosecutors and. To the detriment of those they're investigating. I mean, well, yeah, but I don't lucky. think they're mistakes. No, I know. I'm being I, sarcastic, right? Yeah. Yes. That's the all of these mistakes. What did uh, what did uh, Horowitz document? Uh, Eighteen at minimum. Boy, that, that you, that's a heck of a batting average. All of these mistakes that were made, they made themselves, and they all benefit one side versus the other. That's unusual. 
Well, I encourage your listeners to Google uh, the FBI's darkest hour, and I and I track to the exact month, almost the day, at which the FBI basically lost all plausible deniability for when this might have just been a misunderstanding. And it, it happened in January of 2017 when they interviewed Christopher Steele's uh, primary subsource, and he disavowed everything. And they kept going. And this was four months before Mueller was appointed. He is Adam Mill, attorney specializing in labor, employment, and public administration law, contributor to the Federalist and Greatness and the Daily Caller. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay, take care. Bye-bye now. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, I am a dog owner. I've got a uh, almost three-year-old Arubian Kanuku. Yes, I had never heard of the breed either before getting uh, my dog Hayek, as in Frederick von Hayek, not Selma, from a uh, pound on the northwest side of Chicago. It's a like, mid-sized dog, 50 pounds, sort of a, like, like an island hunting dog of sort. Great dog, smart dog. And uh, new research about dogs and their ability to love Maybe it's not just anthropomorphism at work. A new book by Clive Wynn, founder of the Canine Science, Collabor- Canine Science Collaboratory at Arizona State University, it makes the case for this in his book, Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You. It's good to be loved. He began studying dogs in the early 2000s, did Mr. Wynn there, and uh, like his peers, believed that to ascribe complex emotions to them was to commit the sin of anthropomorphism. But the body of evidence is growing too big to ignore. I think there comes a point when it's worth being skeptical of your skepticism. Canine science has enjoyed a resurgence in the past two decades, uh, much of it extolling how smart dogs are. It's more than that. They apparently have arguably the ability to can feel and convey love. I mean, you know the con- conveyance of it, but are they really feeling love? Wynn uh, proposes a paradigm shift that dogs' uh, hypersociability and extreme gregariousness, gregariousness sets them apart. One of the most striking advances in the research comes from studies regarding oxytocin, brain chemical that sentiments emotional bonds between people. Research led by uh, Japanese academics has shown that the levels of the chemical, uh, oxytocin, spike when humans and their dogs gaze into each other's eyes 
mirroring an effect observed between mothers and babies. In genetics, UCLA geneticist Bridget von Holt made a surprising discovery a decade ago. Dogs have a mutation in the gene responsible for Williams syndrome in humans. Williams syndrome is a condition characterized by intellectual limitations and exceptional gregariousness you know, sociability. Wynn, going back to Clive Wynn, he writes, the essential thing about dogs as for people with Williams syndrome is his desire to form close connections, to have warm personal relationships, to love and be loved. Numerous insights also gleaned through new behavior tests, many devised by Wynn himself to replicate at home with the help of treats and cups. I don't like that ghastly actress and her cup song. What's her name, you know, from Up in the Air? One of the one involved, researchers using a rope to pull open the front door of a dog's home and placing a bowl of food at an equal distance to its owner, finding that animals overwhelmingly went to their owner first. Owner, by the way, not dad or mom. It's annoying to me. But although dogs have an innate predisposition for affection, it requires early life nurturing to take effect. Nor is the love affair exclusive to humans. A farmer who raised pups among a penguin colony on a tiny Australian island was able to save the birds from marauding foxes in an experiment that was the basis for uh, a film, actually. So that, but it, but, but this predisposition, dogs' predisposition to uh, for affection, that nurturing earlier in life, how in whatever form it comes, really interesting. Your dog actually does have the capacity to love you. Maybe he really does. Maybe it is a a mutual love that you have with your dog. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on Twitter at Dan Proft Show, and at Dan Proft. And the uh, NIMBY movement, oh, longstanding, could it be in jeopardy as a result of the YIMBY movement? NIMBY meets YIMBY, not in my backyard, right? Yimby, yes, in my backyard, an affirmation. This is being driven by millennials who don't have a backyard because they're living in mom and dad's basement or they're renting because they can't afford to own a home. And this has actually been argued that one of the reasons you have young people more open minded uh, to the prospect of socialism than previous generations is because they don't see the economic upside that their parents and grandparents enjoyed in large measure through home ownership. The question is, why do we have these problems and what to do about it? Has government been the source of the problem or is it the remedy? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Connor Doherty, economics reporter for The New York Times and author of the new book, Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. Connor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You hit the nail on the head with the wealth accumulation thing. Yeah. Well, go, go ahead and develop that, and particularly as it pertains to the, the YIMBY movement led by younger people. Well, the way I always say it is that many of the biggest problems in America today are at some level a housing problem. And just to pick the one that you touched on, which is basically economic or wealth inequality, if you think about wealth inequality, it is almost all housing. There are a couple people who are multi-billionaires, but most of the real gap between the haves and have-nots in America is a function of housing wealth. 
Uh, and as you point out, that's okay if you feel reasonably confident that you can get on that escalator yourself. And many kids uh, younger, I mean, when I say kids, I mean people 25 to 35 don't feel that. The problems that you're describing and you describe in your book seem to be focused in major urban centers where the problem is perhaps most pronounced. But those are urban centers that uh, where, that are They've largely been governed by one party with a particular philosophy that talk a lot about affordable housing, that all have all kinds of subsidy programs. So it seems like that model's not working. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely true that it's not working. Um, I, don't, I try not to overdo the party stuff uh, because local politics I find not to be terribly – ideological in the way we think about it, red-blue. Well, philosophy, you know, I mean, philosophy, philosophy though. I mean, f- the philosophy is, and, th- and this is in the suburbs, too, where we know it well in Chicagoland, where you have, uh, oh, here the problem with not being able to afford to live in Winnetka, according to some, and it, this would be according to a lot of people in the city, too, is, well, you need to, make a, you need to have the government uh, uh, essentially spearhead an affordable housing project. Uh, you need to be more open to uh, increasing density in the community. And that's the same thing in the neighborhoods in Chicago, too, when we have programs like super vouchers where people with less means can live in neighborhoods with in buildings with people with more means. But that hasn't worked. That's 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 it works for individual people that are the recipients of those vouchers, I suppose. But it, it's not working as a as a, a, a categorical uh, policy solution. Well, yeah, totally. So. What I I totally agree with you. And, you know, because if we don't have enough affordable housing, uh, we're not going to have it doesn't matter how many vouchers you have. It doesn't matter how many, um, you know, million dollar condos you have. If we don't have enough affordable, if we don't have enough housing for the population, we're going to have homelessness and people driving three and a half hours to work and all the things we see. But I think that what I love about this book, what I loved about the reporting of the book is that. There's such an ideological spectrum here. I mean, this book is ultimately about the stories of people who are trying to change politics in housing. Um, And some of them uh, are hardcore libertarians who believe there should be very little regulation of any kind. Mm -hmm. Some of them are hardcore socialists who want to build public housing everywhere. And what I love about this housing issue is that it just, it doesn't, it makes people question how ideological they really are. And that's why I think it really is the rubber, it's where the rubber meets the road in terms of our kind of political identity. You can go to a suburb, uh, you know, the, the reddest suburb of Texas, where people talk about they hate the EPA or whatever, right? And they will tell you that their local government should have all sorts of like regulations that prevent someone from building high-density housing near them. And I would say to them, well, what about the free market? If you want the free market, whoever owns that land next to you should be able to do whatever they want on that land, right? Um, and then the flip side is um, you might go to San Francisco where somebody who uh, thinks they're the most um, liberal person in the world and environmental this and raise taxes that and Bernie that will – you know, they're sort of quietly sitting on a two and a half million dollar house um, that they have very low property taxes on because of uh, California property taxes. Yep. Yes. And and they will tell you that you should you never be able to touch that property and um, and nobody should ever be able to build subsidized housing near them. And so I think in yeah. a weird way, what housing is so fascinating by is that it show, it's, it isn't red blue. And not only that, it shows how. 
I mean, I hesitate to use the word hypocritical, but it shows that our ideologies don't often apply to our backyard. Oh, I know. I agree with that. I think that's well said. And, you know, it's the old it's the old tale of the person gets across the bridge and then they want to cut the bridge for the person behind them. Um, we see that yes, with and, rent seeking and... behavior in all uh, shapes and forms. So it seems to me that the, and, and I agree with you that the uh, ideological uh, distribution here. It's very interesting. And it seems to me the start of these conversations that needs to be about premises. Uh, are we going to start from the premise that uh, private property is the cornerstone of a free society and we're going to respect private property rights? Or are we going to start from the premise that, you know, government is the driver of the equitable distribution of this resource called private property? Well, I, I, so we're not going to get rid of the notion of private property in America. So what everybody, whatever one thinks about that, um, yeah, that's not happening. So, but I do think that we should, we should always be a little bit more honest with ourselves about what private property really means. Um, all, in America, we have a number of tax schemes and other things that we set up to subsidize home ownership. The 30-year fixed mortgage is basically a creation of the government. Uh, the mortgage interest deduction, which has been right. essentially eliminated by Trump, um, which, you know, it's, that's a kind of a whole other thing we don't have to get into. But, you know, uh, the Trump administration, a lot of liberal uh, kind of crusaders wanted to get rid of the mortgage interest deduction, and then Trump did it. So that's one place they actually kind of agree. But um, we do subsidize home ownership in all sorts of different ways. And also, you know, look, where do we want to live in America? You look at an airplane window and you see all sorts of land and you have, you know, dreams of, wow, if they invented a teleportation machine, I could live anywhere and have a giant ranch. But that's not really how it works. The way it works is we want to live near whatever we want to live near, um, a field, a school, a cool retail strip. You know, we have various preferences and we kind of express them with our housing. Mm -hmm. And those preferences are very often a function of some kind of public system, right? Like um, the streets are public, the schools are frequently public. People, people frequently move to better uh, public school districts, um, giant parks, uh, you know, the Chicago Zoo, you know, the lake, the ocean. Of, yeah, no, I get it. OK. Yeah. And so I guess what I mean is, is that land what I, I think that land is this place where um, it's so fundamental to who we are, pretty much defines our existence that the you can almost, you know, kind of prism whatever ideology you want onto it. You know, if you want to say uh, land is a free market say it's a free market, but it's a free market that is largely determined by how close you are to public goods, right? I mean, so it's, I think everything gets very topsy-turvy in land, and I really try to explore that from a lot of different angles through the eyes of a lot of different characters. In this book, there's a, um, you know, like you said, this woman who starts this group called BARF, and, uh, you know, the Bay Area Renters Federation, and she's this <laughs> Great acronym, of, yeah. She's this kind of crazy, kooky person who shows up to... Um, city council meetings and leggings and the tank top and says, you guys need to build more housing. And, and, in you know, it's in San Francisco, they treat her like she's some libertarian shill. So that's what I loved about it, that the, the young people moving to San Francisco these days are kind of anti-regulation. Uh, whatever ha whatever you, happened to the uh, rents too damn high guy in New York city? Yeah. This just sort of I, started this whole movement. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, I tell you one thing, his, 
you know, that slogan has been adopted. Uh, he should have, what he should have done is copyrighted that slogan. He would <laughs> be able to afford whatever rent he would want. So, um, because I, there was actually a big rent control campaign in, uh, in California, uh, last year and they kept saying the rent is too damn high and I hear it everywhere. So, um, I'm actually, I'm only like half kidding that if he would have copyrighted yeah, that, right. uh, and sold merch, he would have done great. He is but, uh, Connor. I'm sorry. We, we got to let you go, but, uh, he, he is Connor Doherty. He's an uh, economics reporter for the New York times, the book golden gates fighting for housing in America. Connor, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. It just takes some time. The little girl in the middle of the ride. The love it, the love it, then it'll be just fine. The love it, the love it, then it'll be all right, all right. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So President Trump uh, rallying supporters in Colorado Springs last night and, uh, you know, giving a little bit of color on pop culture as he has wanted to do, uh, including um, his take on the Oscars from a couple of weeks ago and uh, the uh, winner of the Best Picture Award. Bad with the Academy Awards this year, did you see it? And the winner is a movie from South Korea. What the hell was that all about? We got enough problems with South Korea, with trade. On top of it, they give him the best movie of the year. Was it good? I don't know. You know, I'm looking for like, where, where, let's get Gone with the Wind. Can we get like Gone with the Wind back, please? Sunset Boulevard. So many great movies. The winner is from South Korea. I thought it was best foreign film, right? Best foreign movie. No, it was the button. Did this ever happen before? No, that was a first, uh, Mr. President. I, I don't. I, hey, look, I'm all for, uh, you know, Bill Holden and Gloria Swanson's full oeuvres uh, in terms of the reference to Sunset Boulevard. I'm ready for my close up, Mr. DeMille. Great film. Gone with the Wind, of course, classic as well. I would actually rank Sunset Boulevard higher, but I digress. We talked about Parasite on this show. That would have been my vote for Best Picture. Um, so, yeah, I didn't get the joke. I know he's trying to be light and just riff and add some color to these political rallies because one of the reasons he brings out people in the to the in the tens of thousands is because of the unscripted riffing on all sorts of topics rather than uh, the dry recitation of uh, white papers on various public policy issues. So I get it. I just didn't get the joke. I just thought it was weird. And the whole South Korea thing, we got problems with South Korea trade. Obviously, they're a trading partner. They're an ally. We have troops stationed there since, you know, the Korean War. Um, but um, so it's just sort of odd to me. But then I, I, I call her to uh, the morning program. My uh, co-host in Chicago made the point like, you know, he was sort of uh, taking a dig at Hollywood, like like where uh, American filmmakers uh, are losing out to foreign filmmakers. And I thought, oh, OK, I mean, there's something to that. If you remember um, last week. I talked about Peter Thiel's review of Ross Dothat's new book and one of the uh, cultural criticisms that Dothat offers, New York Times columnist Ross Dothat, uh, is um, there's no authentic culture in the 21st century. For example, so many movies out these days are remakes of remakes. There's, so there's sort of the lack of uh, creativity 
original storytelling coming out of Hollywood in the 21st century as compared to the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. It's, it's an interesting point. I, I So if Trump was going there, I guess, I don't know, it just was sort of ham-handed and bizarre for me. But uh, speaking of the Academy Awards, I'm not going to make a big, bigger deal of his comment about Parasite and, and uh, the Oscars uh, than is warranted. And if you want a big deal made about it, you want to hear people hyperventilate about it, then you can watch CNN or MSNBC. Uh, but but uh, another interesting development out of the Oscars, speaking of which, perfect segue, is Joaquin Phoenix. Remember what Joaquin Phoenix said during his acceptance speech for his uh, Best Actor Academy Award for his performance in Joker? And when she gives birth, we steal her baby. Even though her cries of anguish are unmistakable. And then we take her milk that's intended for her calf and we put it in our coffee and our cereal. Yes, remember his cross of gold speech about cows and cow milk? <laughs> How do you use the occasion of accepting the Oscar for Best Actor to talk? Okay. And because Phoenix is such a bizarre dude and because he's done spoofs before, like remember when he was going to retire from acting to launch a rap career and he had that bizarre interview on David Letterman's show where he just sat there and said nothing. Dark glasses, big bushy beard. Uh, and that was all a put on. So you're wondering if some of the bizarre pronouncements about animal rights in particular, like the one you just heard, is just the latest Joaquin Phoenix put on. It doesn't appear so. Or he's really uh, he's really trying to sell it. Less than 48 hours after he hoisted that Oscar, he went to a slaughterhouse in California, Pico Rivera Slaughterhouse, met with the CEO of the slaughterhouse, Anthony DeMaria. Seems like a perfectly nice guy. If you watch this little eight-minute short, which I'm sure will be nominated for an Oscar for Best Short Film next year. And he, he want, went in tow with the animal rights activist from an organization called Farm Sanctuary to talk to the slaughterhouse brass, starting with Mr. DeMaria, and, uh, you know, make his case against, I don't know, stealing the milk from the calves of the cows. Uh, This is an example of the conversation between Phoenix and DeMaria. And just uh, think about uh, this question when you're listening to this clip. How quickly would you have kicked the indolent Joaquin Phoenix off of your property. So then they were here to be harvested, murdered, harvested, murdered, 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 murdered. You have to understand my side, how I understand yours. I understand, but your language is powerful. So harvested, please. Murdered, okay. All right. Uh, Are they three years old? Well, Phoenix in particular. And also, he sounds like he, I don't know, he just sounds like he's sort of half conscious. Maybe not all his faculties or his synapse is not fully firing. Uh, But by the way, no longer sporting the uh, rail thin Joker body. I'll tell you that. Uh, Anyway, he uh, was introduced to two cows, well, a cow and her calf at the slaughterhouse. He named the two Liberty and Indigo, and then he took the two. Now, with the assent of the Slaughterhouse CEO, it's not clear because the film doesn't indicate whether he was given the two or he 
paid for the two, loads them in a trailer. And, of course, this is all being filmed, as I said. This is like a short film. So it's all staged. As I said, more Oscar material next year. Um, And uh, they drive off into the sunset to a property that apparently is owned by Farm Sanctuary where they can, you know, release the cows to live free in, in the wild, leave, uh, release liberty and indigo to uh, live out their days and happiness. As part of our protocol here at Farm Sanctuary, we do a thing where, you know, at first they come in, we make sure that they don't have anything contagious, and they go in with everybody else, then they can run in the hills and do what cows like to do. Oh, my love. Right? Oh, isn't my she love. beautiful? Oh, my goodness. I hope Rooney Mara doesn't get jealous. Yeah, I looked at, uh, as I'm watching Liberty and Indigo and uh, Joaquin Phoenix's interaction, I could only think, wow, um, I would uh, love Liberty medium well. Uh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe a side salad rather than fries. Uh, also, this question popped into my mind, wasn't asked in the film, but I thought according to noted climate scientist AOC that cow flatulence was an existential threat to the planet. So on the one hand, you have Joaquin Phoenix wanting to save all the cows. On the other hand, you have AOC wanting to save all the world, to save the world by eliminating cow flatulence. So how do you square the circle with those two competing desires to save the planet? Huh. I have to stay tuned to see if those two can reconcile. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. In last hour, we uh, started this discussion with Eric Hoffman, professor at the University of London, professor of politics there about identity politics uh, per his new book on shifting governing coalitions in Western Europe. Some of that evinced by recent election results, not just Boris and Brexit, but election results in the Netherlands and Germany, where there has been a definitive move away from uh, socialists and cultural Marxists into center-right populist parties. The interesting dynamic where you see a move away in the West from those parties who are proponents of identity politics. And yet you have Zach Bochamp writing at Vox.com, supposedly one of the uh, outlets for the uh, next generation of leading lights of the left, that those on the left who think moderation is the order of the day when it comes to identitarian politics are wrong. Writing a liberalism that rejects identity politics is a liberalism for the powerful one that relegates the interests of marginalized groups to second-class citizen status. In point of fact, Bochamp argues what we see happening before us, including with the ascent of Bernie Sanders, that no, we're not to moderate our position identity politics. Actually, we're to double down and make identity politics the central thesis of our offerings. For more on the topic, let's continue this discussion. Pleased to be joined by Spencer Clavin, who is the son of a friend of the show, Andrew Clavin, the great Hollywood screenwriter, Spencer is an assistant editor of the Claremont Review of Books and the American Mind, so chip off the old block in terms of being a, a writing talent. Spencer, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, you uh, uh, recently, for Claremont Review, uh, wrote a review of a book that 
uh, was authored by Douglas Murray, who we've had on our show of the, his book uh, I've read. I just want to start with your reaction to the position of the Beauchamps of the world on the left, that in point of fact, despite some recent electoral setbacks, the remedy for those setbacks is to double down and to extol the virtues of identity politics, which is what uh, Douglas Murray uh, identifies sort of the manifestations of identity politics in four segments in his book. Right. It's not terribly surprising to me, I have to confess. I think one of the things that's most interesting about the Democratic primaries right now, as you can see the party almost pulling itself apart at the seams across this divide between what you might call true believers, the Zach Bochamps of the world, who really have bought into this ideology, who believe certain people are marginalized, gay people, transgender people, women, and certain people are in power, mostly white cisgendered males. And the marginalized people need to be enfranchised at the expense of the people in power, the white cisgendered males. There's a genuine contingent on the left of people that believe this passionately. And they want to see candidates that are going to put those policies into effect. And every candidate in the democratic field right now has to make some kind of gesture in that direction. But I think there's genuinely a a large and growing but kind of silent, perhaps even majority of people that just see more and more how crazy this stuff is. And, you know, it's very hard to speak out, especially on the left against identity politics, because one of the things it does is it demonizes anybody that speaks out against it. But I, I think that the Democrats right now are kind of pulling each other apart over exactly this question. Are we going to just double down on this stuff and really go for it? Or are we kind of making lip service to it, but really, you know, the Mike Bloombergs of the world, I don't think actually want to go through with this, this kind of stuff. But, so it's, it's a fascinating dynamic to watch. But, but, you know, once you foment it, you can't reel it back in. I mean, so it's the bullets out of the gun, it seems to me. So you can uh, be genuine about it or you can be disingenuous and just pantomiming support for these things like Bloomberg is. That's a good example, given just mm. co- comments he's made on the topic relatively recently that are 180 degrees from where he is today. But once you unleash it, you know, how do you then restrain it? No, I think that's right. I think that's part of the genius of Murray's title, The Madness of Crowds, that this mob psychology, you mentioned my dad, and something he's fond of saying is that the devil doesn't care if you're pretending to be evil or if you're sincerely evil eventually. (laughs) You know, he gets you. And yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. The Mike Bloombergs of the world who are only gesturing at this stuff are going to find that it eats them alive. The only question for me on the table is whether some people eventually break away. And I think you see in the intellectual left, you see more and more people doing that. Movements like the walk away movement with Brandon Straka that says, you know, we've just had enough of this stuff. Um, And whether there's going to be an an official political expression for that in the form of a third party or or whatever, I don't know. But yeah, if, if, if any Democrat sort of makes lip service to identity politics, you're right. He's really, he may not know it, but he's in it to win it, as it were. When we come back with Spencer Clavin, I want to pick up this other question. One of the reasons these ideas have spread so quickly, become almost axiomatic uh, ideas that we weren't even talking about five minutes ago, like gender is just a social construct. One of the reasons they've spread so fast is because they're not being defended in a serious way. It sounds like a paradox. I want to discuss that with Spencer Clave, an assistant editor of the Claremont Review of Books. Back with more after this. 
Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Spencer Clavin on The Dan Prof Show. He is the assistant editor of the Claremont Review of Books and The American Mind. Uh, he's written a review of Douglas Murray's book, The Madness of Crowds, that uh, tackles not only that book but the, the larger ideas contained within it. And, uh, Spencer, as I referenced before the break, uh, you make the point about the speed, so does Douglas Murray and many other pundits. The speed at which this has taken hold and been adopted wholesale is sort of remarkable. It has a lot of people's head spinning. But you say perhaps... It's because they haven't these ideas haven't been logically logically defended in a serious way is the very reason they've spread so fast, which, you know, at first blush sounds oxymoronic. Yeah. The example that I give in the piece is the two competing ideas. One, that gender is a social construct. It's a figment of our imagination. There's no such thing as male and female. But two, a person born biologically male can have some spiritual essential conviction that he's actually something called a woman and that's a real thing and and that's that's what he is so those are two ideas you actually can't hold in your mind at the same time They, they contradict one another and i think that in order to make those ideas palatable or to make them spread you have to stop people from asking the question well how do those two things fit together and the way that you do that is you make them scared you call them terrible names if they don't agree with you that these things are true and that is basically how identity politics functions more and more, especially in the universities, that people get no platformed or called bigot and liar and, and hounded out of the public square for even asking these questions. Actually, this Murray doesn't talk about this in his book so much, but I think abortion is another area in which this is really true, that the question before us about abortion, and we who are pro-life are constantly trying to ask the question, well, what is a person? What is a fundamental unit of human dignity? And the left will go to any extreme not to ask that question. Oh, it's about you're against a woman's right to choose, you're against women's freedom and, and health and so on, all just to distract from these very basic questions that haven't been answered by the logic of identity politics. Isn't a, a working definition of sociopathology the ability to hold two contradictory thoughts in your mind at the same time? So, I mean, you, you can almost uh, describe these things as sociopathic, these ideologies. You're right about that, too, and it's interesting, right? In lieu of making a serious argument, we just cower you to accepting our diktats. That's right, yeah. Sociopathy is, is certainly one fitting analogy for what's going on here. Interestingly, I think another analogy for what identity politics is a religion. Now, I'm a religious person. I believe in God. I'm a Christian. But I definitely think that you can have good religion and you can have bad religion. And when religion is removed from, say, the academy and the public square, something comes in to take its place. Right. This is G.K. Chesterton's observation that uh, those who stop believing in God don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And this is what we have playing out in real time. Uh, so if that's the case, and if this is not logic-based, if this isn't reason through, and it's spreading at the pace it's spreading, then how do you stop it? If it's not logic-based, can you stop it with logic, or does there need to be a new approach thought through? That is a fantastic question, and it's something I begin to address at the end of this review. You know, the very first chapter of Plato's Republic, one of the greatest and earliest works of philosophy in the West, Socrates 
is getting in an argument with some of his friends and they sort of half jokingly, they say, well, how can you persuade us if we won't listen to you? And Socrates <laughs> says, you're right, I can't. There's no way to persuade somebody that's not behaving or talking rationally. And so one of the binds that we get into when we try to address identity politics is we attempt to talk about ideas when there might be something much more primal going on and something much more structural. And I think for me, probably the way to go about answering that is to think much more carefully about education and not just about higher education, about the universities, but to look at what's going on, what's being taught in our public schools. Because by the time people get to university, they've already been trained and indoctrinated a lot of the time in some of these pre-rational or illogical ideas. I mean, I live in California where our public school system has basically become legal transgender indoctrination. I mean, there are laws on the books now which mandate that children should be able to declare their own gender and to use facilities associated with that gender and so on. And parents and teachers and counselors, many of whom object, are powerless to do anything about that. And so that kind of educational reform, paying attention in schools and in, and in law to what can and can't be taught in public schools to our kids. I think that's a good way to start getting around some of this craziness and illogic. And it seems to me this is very much like this discussion, this uh, debate that's now uh, been joined against the 1619 Project, the New York Times' 1619 Project, where it can't just be mm. responding to this incomplete history of America that America's racism is in its DNA, it's irreparably racist, uh, slavery is the uh, legacy, and it's the only thing of importance other than the ramifications of slavery. There are, there are no stories of black resilience and black achievement, which, of course, punctuate American history. There's no complete accounting. But if you just operate from their premises and debate slavery, then you're uh, essentially advancing their position. You have to have an alternative story about America that is comprehensive, that folds in a very real thing, slavery, racist institutions like Jim Crow, but provides the complete picture so people get a complete understanding. It seems to me one of the things that these cultural Marxist movements get away with is telling the incomplete story, and maybe the remedy is the complete story. That's a fantastic example. The 1619 Project is a project that has been systematically debunked and disproven at every level by every major academic outlet. I mean, the, the Atlantic published a big piece about all of the factual inaccuracies in it. The, there have been socialist groups that have spoken out against it. There's a wonderful uh, array of pieces by black scholars coming out and contesting a lot of the claims in the 16, 1619 Project. Plenty of rational arguments to be made to demonstrate that this is a completely intellectually bankrupt project. And yet, the installation of the 1619 curriculum in schools carries on apace because mm -hmm. what, what people tend perhaps not to get is that it's not just about winning those arguments. It's about being committed to a project of indoctrination, which is what the 1619 Project is. And in order, as you say, in order to fight back against that, you have to have a, a positive project of education that you can use and be committed to installing in schools and teaching to kids. He is Spencer Clavin, assistant editor of the Claremont Review of Books and the American Mind. Check out his uh, review of Douglas Murray's new book, The Madison Crowds, called Going Off the Rails, which I'll tweet out. Spencer, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Yeah. I know you love me.
the Dan Prof Show. Important question, why are pop songs getting sadder than they used to be? Have you noticed? You know, here we uh, try to use uh, data and uh, research to explain phenomena occurring in our culture, even maybe barely perceived phenomena, like pop songs getting sadder than they used to be. Well, uh, we've got a couple of researchers who are on the job. What they did was, because of the digital age, look at large digital data sets and process the number of times there are negative emotion words versus positive emotion words in songs, comparing pop songs from today to pop songs from 50 years ago. Negative emotion words like pain and hate and sorrow. Positive emotion words like love, joy, happy. Uh, as simple as it sounds, say the research, the method works pretty well, given uh, certain conditions. The longer the available text is, the better the estimates of mood, so on and so forth. Uh, the same technique can be used to can be applied to song lyrics for the, the analysis done. Two different data sets. One contains songs included in the year-end Billboard Hot 100 charts. These are the songs that reach wide success, at least in the U.S. This is going from 1965 to present. Well, 1965 to 2015, but you get it. So looking over 50 years. The second data set was based on lyrics voluntarily provided by the website Music Match. Uh, with the data set, we're able to analyze the, the researchers able to analyze the lyrics of more than 150,000 English language songs, uh, which include worldwide examples and therefore provide a wider and more diverse sample. So what did they find? They found that the trends that they had found in the Billboard data set were the same as the ones that were in the more general data set of songs from throughout the world. English language popular songs have become more negative. That's the upshot. The use of words related to negative emotions has increased by more than a third over the last 50 years. The question is why? Well, one theory is a cultural revolution just the, the evolution of culture and the disposition of culture over time. There's some other su suggestions that uh, weren't researched in terms of answers, but are just offered as, po as theories to be, further, uh, to be the subjects of further investigation. Uh, more centralized record industry had more, sent more control of songs that were produced and sold 50 years ago as compared to today. Similar effect could have been brought about by the diffusion of more personalized distribution channels, from blank cassette tapes to Spotify's made-for-you algorithms. Also, um, societal changes have contributed, make, make, making it more acceptable or even rewarded to explicitly express uh, negative feelings, and uh, not just for Alanis Morissette. So all those uh, hypotheses need to be tested, but, you know, I'm a kid of the 80s, and when it comes to 80s music, I have no peer. And don't you just love a good sort of happy, even if there's a bit of heartbreak, Love song from the 80s, uh, uh, Someday by Glass Tiger. Someday you'll be shedding your tears. Have that as an earworm for the weekend. Thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Far from
from the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.